0: time when there is a lot of uh, angst and confusion about the future of the Wesleyan tradition um, I often find myself thinking about what can be controlled uh, and so if I were to ask the question what is the one thing uh, that we could do right now that would be the most likely to have an impact to bring renewal to the church uh, I would give you this answer so this is what I want to talk about today And I want to start by framing it with two quotes uh, from John Wesley. The first is from uh, the preface to a collection of hymns and sacred poems from 1739. And Wesley's really talking about the the desert monastic tradition, and then he's making this, uh, this critique of it. So he says, Holy solitaries is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Social holiness is a phrase that is very popular uh, in contemporary Methodist and Wesleyan discourse, but is very often misunderstood. In this context, Wesley means that social holiness, it's a synonym not for social justice, which is often used as today, but it's actually a synonym for something like watching over one another in love, that we need community in order to grow in holiness. So what Wesley's saying is that he's critiquing the idea that that you become holy by isolating yourself from other people, that that's as good of a path to holiness as pursuing adultery or practicing adultery is to lead to holiness, which to him was obviously a bad idea. You don't become holy by practicing adultery and you don't become holy by isolating yourself from others. So social holiness, reclaiming this practice, is I think the most important thing for contemporary Wesleyans to do in order to uh, reclaim uh, both the form and power of godliness. I want to talk about the two basic approaches in early Methodism to social holiness. The first is the class meeting. The class meeting is a group of 7 to 12 people. Uh, it was uh, co-ed, that is women and men, married and single folks were together in one group. And Classes were divided based on geographical location. And the basic question of the class meeting was, how does your soul prosper? Prosperity has a lot of connotations in our contemporary context, some of which are very negative for understandable reasons. But I like using prosper in this original framing because sometimes when we think about early Methodist small group formation, we think that it was maybe depressing, that it was sort of uh, very like unhealthily introspective. And this, this quote, how does your soul prosper, really signals that the passion of early Methodists was that, that coming together and talking about our lived experience of God was something that would lead to thriving, that that was the goal, that was what was was expected to happen. Which isn't to say that everything was always perfect, but it is to say that the expectation was that that one would thrive by being a part of this practice. The class meeting in early Methodism was the most basic requirement for membership uh, in Methodism. Sometimes people point out that this was the case when Methodism was a renewal movement within the Church of England. But I think it's as important, if not more important, to note that the class meeting was required in American Methodism when Methodism became a church in a formal sense. So from 1784, when the Methodist Episcopal Church was formed, until about the time of the Civil War, there was a question in the doctrines and discipline of the Methodist Episcopal Church in a section called On the Class Meeting. And the question was, what do we do if people repeatedly neglect to meet their class? And the answer was effectively exclusion, that is that if you miss your class meeting more than three times in one quarter, a three-month period, then you are removed from Methodism and are no longer a part of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Now you could rejoin if you were willing to recommit to that practice, but Methodism had very high expectations for membership. The threshold to become a member was very low, but the threshold or the expectations for continuing to be a member were quite high, they expected you to be willing to commit to this basic practice of being together in community and talking about what was happening in your relationship with God. The second group uh, in early Methodism that was important, so I think these are the two sort of key practices for social holiness, was the band meeting. And The band meeting was a group of about five people. It was divided by gender and marital status, uh, and so that single men were in one group, single women were in a group, and so forth. Uh, and the key question of the band meeting was, what sins have you committed since our last meeting? That's a difficult question, one that maybe a lot of people would not be very anxious to address uh, at first glance. But James 5.16 was always sort of the preface for the band meeting, and so James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So the band meeting was confessing sin not for the sake of shaming, not for the sake of, of sort of Uh, beating oneself up and feeling bad. It wasn't intended to be focused on humiliation, but it was for the sake of holiness. Uh, And I think that this practice is essential to return to because early Methodism, and I think Wesleyans today, must have this profound, deep optimism of what God's grace is able to do in our lives now, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, that there is nothing that we cannot find freedom from, from, release from, that is sort of keeping us from having the kind of life that God wants for us. These practices, things like the class meeting and the band meeting, are being held to in many different parts of contemporary Christianity. What's very sad to me is that they are often being sort of stolen or borrowed by other parts of Christianity and have oftentimes been set aside or abandoned by contemporary Wesleyans but I see fruit wherever I see these basic practices being, being put into place in the contemporary church. And this is our heritage, this is our treasure. And so I think that it is essential for uh, Westlands to return to this practice uh, in our present moment. Uh, Examples I can think of are Life Church, uh, which is a non-denominational church uh, that has multi-site campuses but is not um, officially a part of a Wesleyan tradition. Uh, For the band meeting I think a good example is something like uh, 12-step groups and recovery groups. But what I think about and the reason that I think this practice, this approach to social holiness is essential today, is that to me it gets to this basic question, what will we be known for? There are a lot of things that I think ask for the energy of contemporary Wesleyans. A lot of things that want to sort of ask us to give ourselves to them, give our best time and energy. But what will we be known for? Will we be known as a group of people who built magnificent buildings? Will we be known as a group of people who fought to preserve a crumbling institution and gave our best effort and did that despite all the odds? These aren't necessarily not worthwhile activities. But I think that what we want to be known for Is as people who invest in other people, as people who help men and women created in the image of God find healing, find wholeness, find the joy that comes from salvation in Jesus Christ. I know that that's what God wants for us. I know that that is what is possible in our tradition. And so my hope and my prayer is that we will be known as people who find a way to unearth, to uncover, this treasure to help people figure out how to be real about what's happening in their relationship with God, how to be honest and authentic in order to experience, in newer and deeper ways, the amazing, transforming grace of God. May it be so.